Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was ascended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of his holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God. This morning we start uh, working through the book of Romans, and we are, obviously you've heard, like people are thrilled. The readings got a lot shorter from what we had in Deuteronomy, so we start a lot quicker. We've kind of made a, uh, I don't know if a tradition is the right word, but just a habit. Because we go through the scripture verse by verse, book by book, most often, and predominantly together, uh, we've made it kind of a habit to, when we start a new book, it's an important time in the life of our body, in the life of our church, as we uh, learn these things together and try to live them out with one another. We, we've started by, by just kneeling in prayer as we begin those series. So if you are able and willing, would you just kneel with me in prayer as we start our series in the book of Romans? Uh, Father, hopefully we come to you as those whose hearts and our posture of our hearts is matching that of our bent knees before you. You are the one true living God. We are to be humbled before you as your creatures. And I pray as we start this magnificent book of Romans, as we talk about the gospel of God, that you would not let our hearts be hardened but instead would show us the greatness and the glory of the gospel and that it would change and transform us from one degree of glory to another, that we might become more and more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps this week or in the last few weeks, you've been doing some back-to-school shopping. It's a fun time when you get all your school supplies, you get all your school clothes, you get them all sorted and ready to get back into the books and go back to school. And one of the things I remember with back-to-school shopping is that we would we'd go and get our stuff, and one of the things that we'd do when we got at home was that we would get out some sort of marker and make sure we got our name on it. Right? You had to label everything. If you were fancy... Some of you probably were. You, you had, you'd, you'd embroider you know, your bag, you had your embroidered name on it. That's fancy. I never had that. Or maybe you had a label maker. Some of you very organized moms, you got the label maker, and so it's very clearly listed on every little, like your school box, you even got your pencils. Uh, if you're like us, we just we get the marker out, and you just write your name on it, all the way down to the socks. Like even you'd label socks and like, make sure you don't lose those things. And, and the reason that that's done, it lets everyone know from the outset, both the the child that owns the stuff and those that are around them, that from the outset, we know whose this is because it's easy once you get into the middle of all the kids and uh, all the stuff that's going on for things to float in between. And, and even we know this is to be true that even if you put your name on it, it's likely that someone else might end up with it at some point anyway. So it's easy to get it mixed up uh, in the midst of all the kids. 
Uh, John Stott says of the book of Romans that it is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. And Paul makes it clear from the opening verses that his topic is the gospel, and he makes sure to put a name on it. This is the gospel of God. So that there's no confusion, there's no mix-up with the message. He's going to explain in 16 chapters the gospel of God to distinguish it from any others that might be out there. And right from the outset, he is presenting to these Romans that it's God's message. It's the gospel of God. This is the gospel that Paul had been set apart for, the gospel that he writes of. And it takes all of Romans to describe it and explain it. But here in the first four verses, he gives us kind of a synopsis, a nutshell of the gospel with great density. And he gives us these, these realities, right? It's God's gospel. And he briefly describes it, deeply describes it in these four verses as a gospel that is promised beforehand and a gospel that's focused on the Son. It's God's gospel. It's a promised gospel, and it's a gospel that's focused on the Son. So right out of the gates, Romans is this book. These first four verses, they're just full of density. They're jam-packed, each word worthy of, of great searching and looking into each part of it this morning. And it gives readers this weighty content to consider in just the first four verses. And so we will do more of like, what's the background? What's the introductory stuff? Well, who's he writing to? We will do more of that. But the first four verses, we are going to hit the density of that content. So as in other letters, Paul begins introducing himself to his readers. He says, Paul, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Servant. We just came out of the book of Deuteronomy, where one of the servants of Deuteronomy and the servants of the Old Testament was Moses. And so the, the title of servant in the Old Testament has all sorts of great connotations. We can think of Moses, David, and many others that were servants in the Old Testament. Now, servant and slave, you could translate it slave. We, when we think of that, when we hear those words, it's not, to hear, not hard not to hear it through our own lens and, and think like, oh, well, Paul, he's so humble. He's, he's giving us here this title of humility. And, and surely enough, Paul is humble. And I think that him saying that he is a servant of Christ Jesus is him acknowledging some humility before his readers. But the focus is not so much on Paul's humility, but him calling himself a servant is putting the focus on the authority that he's under. Paul is first a man who is under authority. He is a servant, not just a servant, a servant of Christ Jesus. He's, he's not so much in saying that he's a servant, naming his lowliness, he's more so naming his devotion. And his devotion as a servant is to Christ Jesus. Now, authority is this interesting word in our culture, right? It's, it's a word that seems to have fallen upon hard times, if I can say it that way. It, it's, it's got a lot of noise around it. Most, most of the time, it's, it's in negative ways. You hear about authority in negative ways, like there's some sort of abuse of authority or, or mal-use of, of someone's authority and position of authority. So it's heard loudest in those ways. And so to say that someone is under authority seems especially troubling probably to our ears. But here, Paul leads with it. It's Paul's lead to be a man who's identified as one who is under authority. It's not a dishonor to him to be under authority. It's not shaming to him to be under authority. It's his glory. It's his honor to be able to say, I'm Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And the reason that is, is whose authority he's under. It's no dishonor or shame because of whose authority he's under. And he says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. 
That's an authority that Paul wholly embraces in his own life. In in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says that of this Christ, of Jesus, that this is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And if someone has loved you and given himself for you, that's someone whose authority that you can wholeheartedly and willingly be under. And that's what Paul does. He loved me and gave himself for me. I'm his servant. He's pointing to Christ's authority. And it's easy to welcome that kind of authority. But Paul says he's not just a servant, he's also an apostle set apart for the gospel. Christ, the one whose authority he's under, has called him to be an apostle. You might remember the episode in Acts chapter 9 where Paul's on the road to Damascus and he, and he sees the risen Christ and he hears his voice. And in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, uh, God is speaking to Ananias and says, I have chosen Paul, he's my chosen instrument to the Gentiles. So Paul has been set aside for a specific purpose. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. These apostles were those who did have authority. They were the foundation of the church. The church, Ephesians says, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so he's introducing himself as a servant first, and then he says, I'm called to be an apostle. All these are pointing to his authority, and it's authority, yes, because he's an apostle, foundation of the church, but it's derived authority. He's under Christ Jesus. Paul was given authority for a specific purpose. He was called to be an apostle, set apart, he says, for the gospel of God. That's the purpose that he's been given. He's set apart and called for the purpose of the gospel of God. And I think what he's trying to convey here in these first few words is the same idea that he tries to convey in the letter to the Galatians. Chapter 1, verse 1, Galatians says, Paul, an apostle, And here's the idea that I think he's getting at in Romans, same idea as he says right here, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul in these just opening introductory words about himself is hammering home his divine commission. And that's a divine commission that's not a commission for just any old thing, but for a divine thing, he says he's set apart for the gospel of God. That's the thing that he's an apostle for. Gospel. Gospel is news. It's a a message. It has content. And here's what Paul says of it. It's not mine. Paul didn't originate it. He's not putting his name on it. It's the gospel of God. It's not his invention. He didn't have some insight and say, here's the gospel of God. It's not his idea. It's God's. That is to say that it's from God. He owns it. He originated it. He's the author of it. Now, you remember in in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says to these Galatians... Verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul in the book of Galatians is fired up. And he's fired up because someone has come in to the people that he cares for and loves and has delivered the gospel to. And they've come in and they've distorted that gospel, added something to it, taken a few things away from it, made it their own. And Paul says, stop it. And if anybody does that, let them be a curse. Why? Because he, he just is knocking on the door here. Say, hey, Galatians, don't let anybody do that. Why can't they do that? It's not theirs. They don't own it. He gets so upset because it's not their gospel to change. So at this basic level, one of the things that the gospel of God means for us is that it's not anybody's, the Galatians, the Judaizers, the Romans, ours, it's not anybody's to alter. 
if there's any gospel of X, fill in the blank, whatever that X is, if it's not God, it might be a gospel, but it's not the gospel of God. It's not the same gospel. Right? Paul uses gospel of Christ, so that's the same gospel. Right? But if it's anything other than God and the Godhead, then that's not the gospel of God. It's a different gospel. And Paul says, if anyone preaches you another gospel, let him be a curse. This is God's gospel. And this is a gospel, this is a message, this is news to not be edited. It's not to be added to, it's not to be subtracted from, it's not to be improved or, or give your best attempt to try to improve this in some sort of way, nor does anyone have the right to edit God's gospel. It's his. He originated it. He's the author of it. If you write a book that gets published, it most of the time will go through some, some rigorous editing processes. Sometimes it's just your own editing process if you're the author, but also you, you, you put it out there and others are going to rip it apart. I mean, that's what they're paid to do. Like, all right, let's make this book a book that others can actually read, right? Like it goes through this rigorous process. Or if you have a, a message for your company, it's, it's going to go through some, some rigorous kind of public relations. Let's make sure this is conveying the right idea. We're going to put it through the marketing team to make sure we're, we're relaying the, the message that we want. And we have to ask if this is God's gospel, who is qualified to do that kind of thing? Who's qualified to, to, to put it through an editing process to, to make it a little bit more palatable for those who would hear it? Who, who would be qualified to, to do some PR work on it to make sure that we can make this fit the, the people we want to hit? Who, who's qualified for that? And the answer is, is no one. And yet, many have this audacity. That's why Paul gets fired up in Galatians 1. His Judaizers, those who've come in and said, hey, actually, yeah, keep the gospel. That's fine. Let's also be circumcised. Let's add that on. Paul says, don't do that. They're not qualified. And yet they have the audacity to, to add something to God's gospel. That's why we have a thing called prosperity gospel. We'll say, oh, yeah, you can have God. But what God always promises is these things. We don't add to the gospel. It's not ours. That's why I have a gospel of, of moralism where we think that if we're just good enough before God, we just do the right kind of things then God kind of thinks we're okay and it's going to be okay in the end. But it's not our gospel to do that to. It's the gospel of God. The Bible speaks to all this saying, hey, you, you might be doing all those things, but guess whose gospel is? It's God's. He's the author of it. It's his idea. It's his invention. He's the originator of it. It's his. It's not yours. And, and it needs no improvements. Thank you very much, right? Like God has done a perfect job on this gospel and he doesn't need outsiders who are unqualified to come in and add something to it, take something away, try to improve it, make it a little bit more palatable for the world. It's God's gospel. And for us who can receive it, that's actually really freeing. That's good news. We don't have to come up with something that will be more relevant for people. We don't have to come up with something that's going to like, okay, we, we finally got the magic bullet that's going to hit everyone where they are. God already did that. We don't have to create the news. We receive the news and we pass on the news. We don't need to edit it. We just pass it on. The pressure is completely off because the thing to do with God's gospel is to just be faithful to it, to pass it on, to relay what God has already given and passed down. And that's what Paul's doing. Because I'm a servant of Christ, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And so Paul is explaining and faithfully passing on God's gospel. Now, in the book of Romans, that's going to take 16 chapters. 
And not one bit of those 16 chapters is something new. Paul says that this is foreordained. Verse 1 or verse 2, he says that it's promised. This gospel is promised beforehand. So God's gospel, the one that he wrote, the one that he owns, it's his, is a gospel that's a promised gospel. In other words, God didn't wake up one day in eternity past and think, man, maybe I should come up with something. He didn't wake up one day after creation and think, you know, I'm in a good mood today. Let's give him a gospel. No, he didn't do that. It was beforehand, promised. Right? He didn't look at creation and say, you know what, they've done well today. Let's reward them with the gospel. He didn't say, okay, you've worked your way into it, you've merited, now let's give them the gospel. The scripture is really clear that God decreed the gospel before the ages. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. It says this was decreed before the ages. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says it was before the world's foundation. So in eternity past is when he came up with this. Romans says that he promised it beforehand. How did he promise it? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I'm going to point out a word in this. Holy. Paul, just recognizing, distinguishing certain writings from other writings. Like, these are not just any old writings. These are holy scriptures. He is distinguishing the Old Testament. That's the scriptures that he's speaking of as holy. He's distinguishing the Old Testament from other writings. He is recognizing the Old Testament as inspired words, words breathed out by God. He is recognizing them as authoritative words. And where is that authority based? Where is that inspiration based? All the way down into the prophet's words. I know that seems to be belaboring the point, but it ultimately matters when we think about the words, that down to the very words, they're actually holy words. There is this holy scripture. And Paul reflects that this is an actual conviction of his by, by what he does in Romans. Romans has 60 Old Testament citations. That is more in number and more in concentration than his other letters. And those are just the actual like, explicit citations. Like the entire book, we could say it's like it's tied to all sorts of allusions to the Old Testament that go beyond just the citations. And so if you don't like the Old Testament, you're not going to like Romans. And because the gospel of God has been promised beforehand in the Old Testament, if you're not a real fan of the Old Testament, I'm not sure what you're going to think of the gospel of God. If you want to find God's promises, though, you, you want to see the, the gospel that's promised beforehand, though, then we can go to all the scriptures, all the New Testament, and see what God has done, who he is, what he's like, what he's promised, and we can read holy scriptures. And so where in the scripture does God promise the gospel? When we look in the Old Testament, that's what he's referencing when he says scriptures. These are holy scriptures. Where in the Old Testament does God promise the gospel? I think a better question, actually, is where doesn't he? I'll just fly by, right? Genesis 3.15, God promises. One from your line, Eve, a seed from the woman is going to raise up. What's he going to do? He is going to smash the head of the seed of the serpent. He's going to crush the head. He made promises to Abraham. You will have offspring. They will be numerous. Deuteronomy, of course we got to go to Deuteronomy, and these are probably already in your mind already. You're thinking of Deuteronomy. Immediately when I said Old Testament, you're like, Deuteronomy. I know all the promises of Christ in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, right? Moses says, there's going to be a prophet come after me. He's like me, but he's going to be better than me, right? 
I couldn't make it into the promised land, but he'll lead you to the promised land forever. Like, there's another prophet coming. We can think of the Psalms, which speak often of a coming and reigning king. Isaiah chapter 9 is this, uh, yeah, there's the Prince of Peace, this almighty God who's coming. Or Isaiah chapter 40 and on. They constantly speak of this coming deliverer. And actually, we, we see this word uh, in the Greek translation of Isaiah. You see the word of to proclaim good news. It's the same word of gospel in the New Testament. My wife and I were talking about that last night, and I actually got that wrong. Good news being proclaimed is in the Old Testament. There is an allusion to it. It's all over the, the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 and on. There's this proclaiming of the good news. In, in chapter 40, verse 9, you, you go up onto the mountain and you proclaim the good news. That's the euangelion. That's, that's the gospel uh, translated in the Greek from the Old Testament right there. Or chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful are the feet that, that bring what? Good news. They bring gospel. That's what Isaiah is pointing to. Or in chapter 61 of Isaiah, verse 1, he speaks of the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim to the captives, proclaim to the poor, good news. So that's all over Isaiah. That's not even to mention the, the famous passage of Isaiah chapter 53 where we think of the suffering servant who, who has the sins of the, of the people laid upon his back and they're healed by his wounds. We could think of Jeremiah 31 where he speaks of a new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36 that speaks of a new heart. We could be saying all sorts of things about an exodus that God is pointing to, about the promised land that God is pointing to, about the laws and how they point forward, sacrifices Israel as a people, the kings, and we could go on and on and on about how the scriptures, holy scriptures, the Old Testament, point us to, show us, proclaim to us the gospel of God. I think one author sums it up well when he says, indeed, there is a real sense in which the gospel cannot be the gospel without the Old Testament. Man, I've said this before. Let me just say it again. Like, I don't, I don't know how I feel about handing out Bibles that don't have the Old Testament in them, you know, the little ones. Just, just doesn't, I don't like it, all right? Maybe that's just an opinion, like I'm glad people get the word of God, but man, where, what are you missing if you miss the Old Testament? You, you, in a real sense, the gospel can't be the gospel without the Old Testament. So, hey, if you need help giving people a, a Bible, let us come help you. We'll give them the full thing. Like, we'll, we'll make sure they get the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you need help, come with it, because we want them to see all of these things in God's word. This is the gospel that has been promised beforehand. That's an important element of the gospel of God. Now, I don't know if you watched this show. When I was a kid, the show was going on, and I, I loved to watch it when I could. It was the show MacGyver. I'm not talking about 2016 or whenever the new MacGyver. I'm talking about 80s MacGyver, right? You, you may watch MacGyver, a lot of MacGyver, huge MacGyver fans out there, all right? There's lots of them. They're all over, all right? You didn't see the hands, but they were everywhere. And MacGyver, he would get into these situations all the time where it's like, how do you even get into this thing and somehow you got to figure your way out. And so he's this really ingenuitive guy, and he has to figure his way out of all sorts of situations and problems. And, and often what he would do is that MacGyver wasn't, he didn't, he didn't believe in like using weapons. He was trying to be non-combatant as much as possible. But he had a Swiss Army knife with him, and he would just like, he'd get in these situations, and he'd try to figure out, like, pull out the Swiss Army knife. Let's figure out which tool in this thing can get me out of this problem. He'd do that all the time. He got a situation, pull out the Swiss Army knife. Here's the reality. Sin didn't take God off guard and force his hand to, to find the right tool in the Swiss Army knife to apply to the human situation. This was a gospel that was promised beforehand. God had the answer beforehand. Before the fall, God had decreed the gospel, the good news of God. The gospel was foreordained and promised, and we see it written down, recorded 
in the Old Testament. And so the gospel is no engineering trick from some sort of spiritual MacGyver, but God's plan from the beginning. This is not plan B. Like, the, the world is really screwed up. Son, you want to take a shot at them? This is plan A. From the beginning, before the foundations of the world, God has people that are going to be his people. It's promised beforehand. And so when we look to the Old Testament, we see a testament that's pregnant with both the seriousness of the problem of sin and pregnant with the anticipation of a promised deliverer to come. So when we look to the New Testament, we move to Romans, we're not looking at something that's antithetical to the Old Testament, right? We're not looking at something that's working against the grain of the Old Testament. We're looking at something that's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't come along and contradict all those things we saw in the Old Testament. The New Testament comes along and confirms all the things we saw and actually shows us what we didn't see. We see it more clearly because we have the New Testament. If we could, in a sense, go back to before creation and pull up, God, just show us your plans. Like, Just give us a layout. If we could do that we would see that plan A was the gospel of God. And that there's no other plan, that before creation, there would be included in God's plan, the gospel. That's why he actually put it in the Old Testament, promised it, wrote it down, recorded it, so that people could look at it and see it. He's not trying to hide this as a reality. It's not plan B. It's God's gospel, and it's a promised gospel. And what that does is that points us to the sovereignty of our God, to his faithfulness to carry out and work out his promises in real time. It points us to his trustworthiness. He's actually on record for being sovereign, faithful, trustworthy, because he wrote the things down in the Old Testament. This is a God then that we can put our confidence in. This is a God that when he makes promises, you can put your hope in those things, because he not only knows the problems beforehand, he also knows the answers beforehand, and he makes promises to his people. He writes beforehand of the gospel of God. And so God's gospel is a promised gospel. But it's a gospel that's centered, that, that's focused on something. God's gospel is promised, and the focus is on his son. Look in verse 3. This is the gospel of God, promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. The Old Testament has all sorts of ways of, of talking about the Son of God. In the Old Testament, the sons of God are, are angelic. Some are righteous men are sons of God. Israel's the Son of God. Kings are the Son of God. And there's all sorts of, of ways that those kind of portray what it looks like to be a Son of God. But none of them were the Son. None of them were, as he says it here, His Son, the very Son of God. God, He's the author of the gospel, but the substance of the gospel is the Son. That is, in a way, to say that, that God is the author and the substance of the gospel, that it's from him and about him, because it's from God and about the Son, who is God the Son. The focus of the gospel is his Son. The gospel is a message, right? It is news. And that news, that message, what it has as its content matters. It's of vital importance, and it has specific content, because it is news, and the content is vital. And the content that Paul tells us about says what it focuses on, its center is his son. Now you might have heard the, the phrase, the saying that was going around uh, not too long after this time period that all roads lead to Rome. The, the time period that Paul writes this, like, 
The Roman Empire is dominant. And there are some unprecedented things going on in regards to Rome. And so you can speak of the world as being very Roman-centered world. All the roads, they led to Rome because Romans built roads. So we had Roman roads. You had the Roman Empire that was being connected by these Roman roads. Everyone wanted to trade routes. They were going to Rome. They, they were getting there. That was a destination. It was a destination for knowledge. It was a destination for business. I mean, you have Roman armies or Roman Imperial Guard, Roman everything. And to that Roman-centered world, Paul says, let me tell you about the gospel of God concerning his son. So the gospel of God focused on his son. Maybe he knew of this temptation in humanity, maybe specifically in their temptation as those who were considered Roman to see the gospel as something that was centered on Rome or of Rome or this Roman gospel. And he says, this is God's gospel. And it's concerning his son. Now we live in a very self-centered world. And we have self-centered souls ourselves. And we need to hear the same message. We need to hear the gospel of God concerning his son. And what does our culture want? What do we want, right? We, we look, at, look at the bestseller list. Like it's a, it's a here's the something, a message directed at you. You are in the center of it. Look at marketing campaigns. The, the message, everything, it's, it's directed at you, the individual. The message is very directed. It's pointed. It's focused on the individual. And so we're being, like, we even have curated things around us to make us re reminded that the world really is about us. But the gospel is God's. It's God's gospel, and it's first from him, and about him. It's from God and it's about his son. Now it might be for the Romans. It might be for us. But it's not ours. And it's not even first about us. I like how one author puts it. He says that God's gospel does not primarily deal with our needs as we perceive them how I can live a better life, overcome my hang-ups, make sense of my existence, although it may include these, right? Like, it's primarily not dealing with that, not first. So what Paul does when he comes to the Romans is he isn't first addressing all of the specific Roman needs. What the gospel of God, when it comes to us, doesn't first deal with all of our specific individual needs. It might do that, but that's not first what it addresses. We heard already, like, how amazing this book of Romans that the, describes the gospel of God has been used to transform individuals, people, uh, significant and prominent figures across history, like how the course of history has been changed by people coming to this book and it confronting them with the reality of the gospel of God. It's just amazing to think about the impact of this individual book. And what we might be tempted to think in our world is that we need a gospel that's focused on us, that's aimed first at us in our needs and our wants, and so it can kind of satisfy those things. But what the world really needs, what we really need, individually what we need, is a gospel of God that's focused not primarily on us, but is concerning and focused on and centered on the Son of God. That's what the Romans needed, and that's what we need. And incidentally, the gospel that's focused on us not the gospel of God, and it's just like dust in the wind, whereas the gospel of God has had lasting impact across the ages. And so with God's gospel focused on the Son, like this is the gospel for us. And, and Luther says of this gospel that's concerning 
focus on the son who says, here, the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of the Holy Scriptures. Paul looks back and says, it's God's gospel, it's promised beforehand, and it's all focused on, it's centered on this son. And Paul immediately points to the scripture describing the son. Look in verse 3. Here's where the, the words get really dense. Right? He doesn't take it easy as he starts. He says, this is the, pro- the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's son was descended from David. That is, God the Son was born as a human in the line of David. Now, order of these words matters because he's going to give us two descriptions of the Son. He was the Son. Here's a a, a participle describing the Son. Descended from David, according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So those are the descriptions of God the Son and the order is important here because he is the son and then these descriptions come that is that it's the eternally existent son of god who was descended from david he didn't become the son of god because he was descended from david he was the son of god and he as the son of god who was descended from david he was already god's son before he came from the line of david before he took on flesh and entered into time-space history. So it's the divine son who takes on flesh. He adds humanity to his divinity, and he descends, and he descends from the line of David, which happens to be a kingly line. And when he descends from the line of David, he's fulfilling all kinds of Old Testament promises, promises that God made beforehand in the Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, like, Prophets that write this are are looking forward to a future Davidic son who's going to reign, sit on David's throne forever. Something David couldn't do, something Solomon couldn't do, something none of them can do because they're all going to die. It looks forward to a Davidic son, a Messiah, to reign forever. Or Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, it looks to an anointed son where where God says, right? he speaks here in chapter 2 verse 7 of Psalm, he says, the Lord said... You are my son. That's true. That's, that's what's going on. And today I have begotten you. So he looks to an anointed son, who once he was already a son, looks to him to reign and rule. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, this prince of peace, this mighty God, this wonderful counselor is one who's going to, what, also sit on the throne of David? The government is going to be on his shoulders? Like he is a reigner, a ruler, a kingly figure who's going to reign. And that's what it looks forward to. Or in chapter 11 of Isaiah, you, you look to the, the root of Jesse, the stump from Jesse. It looks forward to one who's descended from the line of David to be this anointed ruler who's going to be Davidic, messianic, and who's going to reign and who's going to rule like David, but have a better and greater reign than rule than David. And so when we see that here's one, verse three, it's his son is descended from David. He's fulfilling all of these Old Testament promises that God had made beforehand. So David and the Davidic line, are these expectations are filled with, with things like the anointed one who's coming. It's, it's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the king. And Jesus Christ, the son of God, he enters into time-space history as that man that the Old Testament looks forward to. But it also says that not only was he descended from David according to the flesh... 
But again, remember, this is the son. His son was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. All right, again, Paul's not taking it easy on us as he starts. Like these are dense words, right? Again, maybe an echo of chapter 2, verse 7 of the book of Psalms where it says, the Lord says, today, you're my son, and today, as my son, I've begotten you. You're going to reign and rule. The descent from David as a man from the flesh is what he spoke of in verse 3. But that descent and that coming into time-space history, taking on flesh, doesn't tell the whole story of the gospel concerning the Son of God. He is also one who lived, died, and was raised. And after his resurrection, he's the Son of God. But not just the Son of God. Notice what it says here. He's the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness. Paul throws in there that little uh, spirit of holiness completing within these first verses that the trinitarian formula we have this is the gospel of god it's concerning the son and now we have the spirit that we have the trinity present in this gospel but the essence of the son hasn't changed but the status of the son has through his resurrection he's attained an exalted Status So much so that Paul could say later, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He, he is saying that through his life, death, and resurrection, coming out on the other side of death, this is the one who we can proclaim as Lord over all. His life, death, and resurrection, summed up here, and Paul says that in his resurrection, it inaugurates a new age. We're not in the age of the flesh anymore, from which that same age, Jesus descended as the son of David. We are now in the age of the spirits. We are leaving the age of the flesh that's reigned by, by sin and death. And we've now been through Jesus. We have inaugurated this new age, this age of the spirit where life can reign. And so one commentator says that the transition from verse 3 to verse 4 then is not a transition from a human Messiah to a divine son of God, but from the son as Messiah to the son as both Messiah and powerful reigning Lord. Again, notice the order, and it matters, that the Son of God is the one who descended from David, and the Son of God is declared the Son of God in power. He's achieved through his work this new status. He is now the Son as both Messiah and powerful reigning Lord. So the gospel is the message of the, the Son who came, who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who raised and has been exalted as the Son of God. Jesus Christ, this Son of God, is the firstborn of the new creation, the firstborn from the dead. I mean, remember what it says here, that he was raised, his resurrection, from the dead. What does that point us to? What does that remind us of? It reminds us of that he had to descend into that, that he actually faced death, that he entered into death, but that he also didn't remain there. That death couldn't hold him. That he broke the chains of death and was raised. And his resurrection, it ushers in this new age that no longer is dominated by the things of the flesh. But now it can be, as we're going to see all through the book of Romans, this place where we're set free and fully alive to God because of the work of his son. The age of the resurrection is at hand in the son of God. It's at hand in the Son of God, who is the Son of God in power, the reigning Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I love that with all the density and the titles that, that give a claim to the Son of God here, that Paul returns us to and kind of sums it up with this great phrase to end verse 4. Here's how you could say, like, what are we saying in verse 3 and 4? Who are we saying Jesus is? Who are we saying the Son is? So you could say this, that we're saying that he is Jesus Christ our Lord. It's God's gospel. It is promise, and it's focused on the Son. But, but I want us to notice something as we end verse 4, that it's, he says it's Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice something that I think is implied in these words. Notice some of the nature of the gospel. That Paul says that he has a stake in this. Not just as one sent to proclaim it, but he calls Jesus, the Son of God, his own Lord. So I think what's implied here is that this is a gospel that's from God, it's about God, and it's offered to people. Amen. It's one that's held out to others. This, our Lord, implies that Paul got in on this. And I think the implication, as he's actually writing this out, and what we're going to see so clearly in the book of Romans, is that not just that Paul got in on this, but he's saying to you, all of you out there, this is the gospel of God. You can get in on this too. This Lord, this Son of God, He can be your Lord. You can get on on this. He's holding it out. This makes sense with the, the title even of Son of God. The Son of God in, in the Old Testament were people that were God had set His love and affection on for the sake of others, right? He wants to save a people, and here comes the Son. He's the better Adam. He's the better David. He's the better Israel. So that his life, death, and resurrection can start a new age where we have life with God and life in the full. This son of God, Paul is holding out to them, can also be Lord. So God's gospel is this one that he promised beforehand that's focused on this amazing son of God and is a gospel that is offered out to sinners. It's things like this, realities like this, that make people say things like Martin Luther said. He said this of Romans, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And it is worthy, not only that every Christian should know it word for word, right? Let's get started on that, right? Four verses this week, we'll, we'll go with a few more next week. Know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. How does it become precious? How does it become better to the taste? It's not just by knowing it mentally. It's not just by having it memorized. It's not just by having it read over you. It's not just by knowing the actual words that are there. It becomes precious if you know the gospel of God is for you. It becomes precious if you know the Son of God as what Paul calls him at the end of verse 4, our Lord. Church, this is, this is God's gospel held out to us. We can call the Son of God who lived, died, and was raised, the Son of God in power, we can call our Lord. And if this is you, right, that Lord has commanded his people to do something when they get together. He has commanded them to remember what he has done, to remember that he descended from the line of David and that he went and entered into death, but he was resurrected from the dead. And we do that in what we call the Lord's Supper. If you call Jesus your Lord, if he is actually the Lord, he is over your life, and you are pointing to him as your only authority, the one that you 
submit your very life to, then this meal is for you. Jesus, the Son of God, is our only hope in life and death. And if that's you, then this meal is for you. Where we're reminded of Jesus and how his blood was poured out so that sins could be washed and forgiven. Of his body that was broken so that ours could be made whole and healed and be with the Lord forever. He was raised so that we would look one day to his coming again and know that because he was raised, we too will be raised. But if you don't call Jesus Lord, this meal is not for you. And and we don't say that in a derogatory way. We we, we mean that this really is not for you. Instead, what we want for you is to, to know Jesus as Lord first. So if you don't know Jesus as Lord, we'd say we want you to consider the words of the scripture and what it says about Jesus. And we would ask you to consider who he is and what he's like. And that if you want to know him, we can talk to you about what that looks like. You need to repent of your sins and put all of your trust in him. But this meal is not for you. And it's totally okay to stay seated. But if you're a believer, this meal is for you. Jesus is our Lord. And we take this together as a family because we're all saying that sacred confession. Jesus Christ is our Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you for good news. Thank you for this family meal that you invite us to, all of those who have already taken the invitation to be in your family. And we praise you that the requirements to be in your family are just knowing our unworthiness of being in it. It's just to know our need The requirement to be in your family is to turn from our sin and put our trust in you. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we're the best or the brightest or have the best behavior, better than other people. It is that we know that we're a mess and we need you to redeem us. Thank you for calling us into your family. We want to reflect today on both the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of the cross, Jesus, that you went to on our behalf. We're messy and you love us and you press into our mess and you make us new. And we delight in that today. We want to feast And we want to taste and see that the Lord is good again as we take this meal and remember your shed blood and your broken body on our behalf so that we can be spared your wrath on that final day. And instead of wrath, we get a wedding feast. And we get paradise forevermore face to face with you and with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I also pray for those who do not know you as the Lord and that they would bow their knees now and make you their king and not wait for that day when you return, when it's too late, when you say every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You are the Lord, whether we acknowledge that or not. But God, I pray that you would pull people to you today, that they would turn from their sin 
turn from the control of their own lives that uh, they're driving into the ground, seeking for joy, seeking for pleasure, seeking for meaning in life outside of you, and you didn't create life that way. You created us for yourself, God. Call people into your family today. In your name I pray.